So hello, everybody, and welcome to What Do Scientists Do? It's a show where I talk to a different science guest each episode, and they tell us all about their experiences working as a scientist and some of their favorite science topics and concepts. My name is Jessica, and today I'm joined by our very special guest. Could you give us your name and your pronouns, please? Sure. My name is uh, Josh Fitch Michaelis, and my pronouns are he, him. Cool. So, Josh, what kind of scientist are you? Sure. Um, so my day job is as a conservation scientist, but the reason that I'm here is because I was a winter rover with the Ice Cube Neutrino Observatory um, at the South Pole. Winter rover, what does that mean? Yeah, so um, a winter rover is basically somebody who uh, lived and worked in Antarctica over the, the winter. So it's a, an eight month period when we're kind of completely cut off from the outside world. It's, it's very dark, it's very cold, but yeah, very peaceful place. That's very cool. So you were staying in at the South Pole to take care of this Ice Cube lab, right? What is Ice Cube? Yeah, so Ice Cube is the, the world's largest neutrino telescope. Um, and we can talk a bit about what a neutrino telescope is. But basically, it's a, it's a big buried detector. So it's, um, it's a cube. It's a kilometer square cube. And it's buried two kilometers under the ice. And we use this to detect uh, neutrinos, which are these very small elementary particles um, and we're trying to spot these particles coming from outside the galaxy so it's kind of a crazy experiment um, it's been running for about 10 years and um, every year we have two staff members who work at the pole on site uh, throughout the entire year to keep this telescope running that's very cool why would we want to know about these neutrinos yeah so neutrinos are kind of weird in terms of like, particles, they, they don't interact with very much. So you have like billions and trillions of neutrinos are passing through you right now, and all your listeners, it's the same for everyone. Um, neutrinos are kind of formed in nuclear reactions. So things like the sun, the sun is always kicking out loads of neutrinos, but they also come from outer space. So from things like the cores of galaxies, like these very energetic astrophysical um, objects. And the cool thing about neutrinos is they, because they don't interact with very much, they tend to travel through everything in a straight line. So whereas light can get bent around galaxies or it gets absorbed by dust, um, neutrinos come straight through. So they're kind of, in theory, a very interesting way of looking at very, very distant objects without kind of interference. The downside is that they interact very, very rarely because they travel through. They're only weakly interacting, we call this. So <laughs> Ice Cube spots around one, one of these high energy particles a month. So it's, <laughs> it's quite difficult work. But yeah, in theory, they're this kind of, it's a very new kind of astronomy. Um, it's like a new way to look at the universe. That is very cool. You mentioned that the neutrino detector itself is under the ice. Why is it underground and why the South Pole? Yeah, so there are a couple of reasons. Um, if you look at how neutrinos are built, oh, sorry, neutrino detectors are built, um, they're often uh, underground and they're often these big kind of caverns. So there's another detector in Japan called Kamiokande, which is in a, in a mine and it's filled with water. And the way that we detect these neutrinos, we don't actually look for the, we don't detect the neutrino itself. We wait for it to hit a particle, so like the ice or the water. And um, when that happens, you get another particle created, which is charged. And that particle is traveling so fast that it starts to emit some light. And we see this, this blue light, which is called Cherenkov radiation. And it turns out that ice is a very good medium or like a substance to detect this, this light. Um, and so <laughs> the South Pole is, uh, is actually on a plateau. So where, where you think of the, you know, the bottom of the Earth is actually a, a very high 
glacier. It's a, like a two kilometer thick flat sheet of ice. And if you dig down, um, the ice there is exceptionally pure. It's, it's like very, very clean ice. And so the reason it's built there is because it's the only place that we have that much ice kind of in one place, really. Um, and the South Pole is mostly convenient because we have a net, like there is a base at the South Pole. We can fly in materials and we can, you can actually build stuff there. Um, I don't think it has to be the South Pole specifically, but if you want a place with, yeah, lots of ice and you can build things, the Pole is a pretty good place. That's really interesting that it happens to be right at that South Pole because you were like near the South Pole marker, right? Like you could see the South Pole. Yeah, uh, from my bedroom window. This is, I think, something that people don't really quite understand when you say, oh, I work in Antarctica and you say, oh, whereabouts? Oh, at the Pole. And uh, you mean literally like, you know, 100 meters from from the pole marker. Um, yeah, so, so the US happens to have a, um, a research station at the South Pole. Okay, cool. So that's, is that how you kind of had enough people already there and maybe ways of getting supplies there in order to build it? Yeah, so there are research stations. I mean, I should say there are stations across Antarctica and Antarctica is a very diverse continent. Um, so there's lots of things like you know, marine biology and ecology going on at the, in, near the coast. Um, people do some ice core drilling. At the McModo Dry Valleys are a very interesting place because it's kind of, well, they're very dry, um, but lots of <laughs> geology and cool stuff going on there. And at the pole, um, so the, the base has been there since the 50s. So the, the first, I guess, South Pole station was built in, I think, the 53, something like that. Um, the current station was built in 2008, so it's, it's quite new. But it's been permanently sort of inhabited for the last uh, 50, 60 years. Wow. So you mentioned that you spent the winter there. I have a lot of questions about that. <laughs> but first, maybe we should kind of get everyone on the same page. What is winter at the South Pole like? Sure. Um, so one of the things that's interesting about living at either pole um, on Earth is that a day takes a year. So, um, <laughs> you know, the, the closer you get to the, you know, the, the axis, basically, um, like at the pole, yeah, it's, it's one day per year. So summer is 24 hours of sunlight and winter is you know, 24 hours of, of nighttime. And there's obviously the moon comes up as well. But in the winter, it's yeah, it's it's night for six months or so. So the, the average temperature in, well, at the pole is around minus 56 Celsius. And a winter that goes down to minus 72 or negative 100 Fahrenheit for listeners in America. Um, so it's pretty cold. It is uh, very high, as I mentioned. So, so living there is um, the cold is actually not the problem for most people. The problem is the altitude because the, the plateau is at around 10,000 feet. So you're kind of living on a mountain. And that's actually quite hard to adjust to for the first few weeks because your you know, breathing is difficult and there's less oxygen in the air. So Often people have to take um, like altitude sickness medicine because it takes a bit of time to adjust. Um, so when you arrive, you arrive in the summer and it's, yeah, it's like, you know, midnight sun, it's, it's daytime all the time. Um, and then winter comes and um, the temperature drops and the station is completely cut off because it's too cold to fly in aircraft. Um, and so for those eight months, which it's kind of winter plus a bit, but um, for eight months of the year, the station is isolated from the outside world. Wow. So you're isolated from the outside world. What is your job while you're there? 
So um, my job, and um, there were two of us um, doing this, uh, was to run the detector, basically. So we um, we make sure it's taking data, we um, do some field work occasionally, um, and we fix things when it breaks. So IceCube is generally pretty reliable. It's been running for also for about 10 years, and um, it runs 24-7. But occasionally things break, and we, we have to go and, and fix them. Um, that might just be restarting some software. Um, it might be changing, like if a hard drive in a computer fails, we, we swap it out. We back up data to send back to the to the north, as we call it. Yeah, so it's kind of like a um, a bit like an IT job, but in a very unique place. Yeah, just doing some IT stuff, but also you're cut off from the world for eight months at a time, and it's dark twenty four hours a day. One question I have for you is, what do you do for fun in that situation? <laughs> That's actually a question I asked on social media. I asked our audience for questions, and that was one of them. What do you do for fun when you're not working? So. The station is quite new and we have a lot of facilities for entertainment and keeping busy. So we have um, like there's a large uh, there's, there's a, a big sports gym. There's a, um, a normal gym. We have two movie lounges. We have a library. Um, there's a music room uh, There's a craft room. So kind of the same sort of stuff that you do at home, really. People often bring projects to do. So if you have if you're into crafts or you, you play an instrument, you can usually do that. Um, we had movie nights we had a you know, tv nights we did trivia um we kind of it's a mixture of doing what you enjoy and also making your own fun because you know you're stuck with these 40 people for <laughs> most of the year you get to know everyone very well everyone's you know gets on um but mostly it's what you do at home i think and i guess you were there around 2020 2021 right yes were you there when COVID happened or was COVID already happening before you went? Well, I left the UK in September 2020. And so COVID was kind of in full swing at this point and caused a lot of problems actually getting to Antarctica because we had to, um, you know, obviously it would be a problem if COVID reached, well, any of the stations. Uh, so we had a pretty extensive quarantine sort of period. Like I, we had to fly to the US and I did a two-week quarantine there. Uh, we flew to New Zealand and had a two-week quarantine there, and then we flew to Antarctica from there and had, you know, we had masking and the usual social distancing stuff. So it took about two months door to door to get to um, to the South Pole, and this is normally a trip that you can do in a couple of days if everything <laughs> lines up, um, because in a normal year there are flights kind of almost every day from both New Zealand to the to McMurdo, which is on the the coast, and then from McMurdo to South Pole. So it's a very different year as far as Antarctic operations go. Yeah, but I guess once you get there, you probably don't have to worry about it, right? You kind of have automatic isolation from yeah. everything. Um, so the, the kind of rules that we followed were if, if we had a flight of people arriving, we would wear masks and take kind of extra precautions. But once they've, they'd been in the station for some period of time, we would be fine to, to not do that. And of course, once, um, once station closed and we, you know, there's no escape anyway, um, then yeah, we were free to to socialize and do what we wanted, which is kind of cool because it's it's nice not to have those restrictions. And it felt kind of almost a privilege to be able to do that when everyone else was, you know, in lockdown and yeah. Yeah, it's almost like by being so isolated, you were less isolated than a lot of people might have <laughs> been at the time. 
yeah in a, it's it's strange because we often joke that living at the pole is you're you're more isolated than the space station um because if there are if there was some issue that happened in the winter it would take like over a month for somebody to to get out um so <laughs> yeah once once you're at, once you're there you're there I guess that brings me to my next question, because you mentioned it would take a month for someone to get there. In terms of daily life, what do you eat? Do you have to just eat cans that you get from the <laughs> for the eight months? Um, what do you get to like? Yeah, so to, how does all a little, that work? Little of, little of both, right? So we have um, everything is frozen pretty much. So uh, we don't get food deliveries during the year. So everything is flown in or is uh, is driven in overland during the summer. So we kind of restock our, there's a big warehouse, essentially, that we have, it's filled with food and other supplies. Um, so most of the stuff that the the galley cooks, um, so we have, we have three um, chefs doing our meals. Um, so you get three meals a day that's all provided, and it's, it's pretty great. And most of the food is kind of what you eat at home. Um, you know, it's kind of interesting to see what, really how far you can get with frozen, frozen things. Um, we also have a greenhouse, which is pretty cool. So we have a, um, a hydroponic greenhouse. So the whole, that means there's no soil. It runs on water and nutrients. And so we grew enough that we had salad pretty much every day. So actually the, the greens we eat are probably fresher than what most people are used to from, from a supermarket because it's, you know, it's grown like two rooms down from the kitchen. That's kind of funny cool. because, <laughs> because people would come back from, um, you know, they send messages on Facebook saying, oh, I'm back in New Zealand and I'm really happy to have a salad. And like, come on, people, we had, <laughs> we had the freshest like salad in the world for <laughs> most of the year. What did you miss the most? Uh, in terms of food or generally things? Um, we'll say, we'll do uh, food and we'll do in general. So food wise, I think the thing I miss most is real milk. Because we had some um, kind of like box milk um which was which ran out very quickly because we don't have much of it and then it's powder milk for the rest of the year and it's just not the same as as fresh fresh milk i mean from the uk where getting you know there are dairies everywhere and milk is great um we get so we get fruit deliveries in the summer so the first when the first planes come in they bring us fruit and often people really crave like fresh oranges or avocados um honestly the our chefs were so good that you don't really, I didn't really miss very much, actually. The thing a lot of people miss is the internet <laughs> because we have very slow, we have a very slow satellite connection. So it's, it's almost impossible to do anything, you know, high bandwidth. So, you, you know, you can't stream videos, you can't um, download big files or, or anything. So that can be quite frustrating, even for doing simple things like, you know, checking your bank account can take five minutes. <laughs> yeah, I can see how that would be the worst. Okay, I have, I'll do another couple of questions from our audience. Um, someone wants to know, do you have any spooky stories from the nonstop darkness? Um, I don't, but I can tell you, so people definitely do. Uh, so the way the station is laid out is we have kind of the main station building and there is outdoors, like a big kind of like, it's like an outdoor warehouse. So we have rows and rows of cargo that's kind of just, outside and one of the odd things about antarctica is it's very dry so you can leave things outdoors and they get covered in snow but they don't rust or they don't degrade so you can just keep things outdoors in boxes um and there are um people who work at the south pole whose job is to kind of maintain things like the heating systems and hvac and that kind of stuff we call them uh, ut's so you think they're utility technicians 
Um, and they have to go and walk around to lots of outbuildings. So there are also buildings outside the station where they have to check heaters and furnaces and things. And they often have kind of weird stories of going out in the middle of winter and, you know, checking a, a heater somewhere and you hear a noise and you think like, what is that? Because you know that, you know, there's only, <laughs> no one's supposed to be out here. So definitely people can get spooked. Um, I mean, so, <laughs> so one day somebody found a, what looked like a kind of a paw print in the snow, which, you know, there's nothing there, but that's, it's kind of funny. Like, what is this? <laughs> yeah. So wait, you mentioned that there's nothing there. Were there animals around? Did you see any cool animals? What was the animal situation like? So yeah, this is a kind of the sad thing about South Pole is that it's it's too cold for for life. And even the um even the the ice is basically sterile. So there's no if you if you take a sample of ice and you melt it, there's no bacteria frozen in there or there's, there's nothing. And I mean, in fact, the, the the ice is so pure that we have to add minerals to it before we can drink the the melt water because it's yeah, it's it's just pure water. Um, so most of the, the, the wildlife in Antarctica is on the coast. Um, and unfortunately, we fly in uh, a little bit too early to see penguins and things. So um, on the coast, penguins kind of turn up when the sea ice breaks up around December, January. Um, but by that time, we're already um, at the pole. That's really interesting that there's not even anything like in the ice. Um, that's really interesting. Yeah. I, I did a microbiology degree. That's my okay, kind cool. of area. So that intrigues me as well, because I'm surprised that you really couldn't find anything. Um, yeah, pretty much. Yeah. Um, I mean, so the because the water we drink is is meltwater. So we have um, a plant that just yeah melts melts ice, and then we have a, a water tech who adds you know balances the pH and adds stuff to it, and we drink it. Um, but yeah, that that water is is pure water. Yeah, that's wild. So, yeah, I'll mention for everyone at home that if you didn't know, the water that you get from nature, from a river or from a lake that goes through our water purification system and into your tap is full of things that aren't water, like minerals and stuff that you need that are part of like what we need to survive. So having water with nothing in it is actually it would be really bad for you. You'd end up missing something important in your body. Yeah, this is also this is news to me. I mean, I didn't realize it was that pure. And um, you actually have to kind of take care that when you, yeah, when you drink water, there you have to make sure it's actually from the station. You're not just, <laughs> you're not just. Uh, so, for example, Ice Cube is uh, our our detector building is not in the main station, um, and we have a, we have a, you can collect snow, right? You can collect a bucket of snow and leave it inside, and it will melt, and you can drink that because we don't have water running between the buildings. Um, but yeah, you've got to be a bit careful that you don't drink too much of it because it's not, it's, yeah, it's got no electrolytes or anything in it. It's really interesting. What was your favorite thing that you did working for Ice Cube? Favorite thing? Um, I think it's just a very cool place to work. Like, it's, like I said, it's, it's a relatively normal job, but it's in a very unique place. And when you do have to go out to the, the building to to fix something and you know it's it's nighttime and there's auroras and you know it's a beautiful sky that's i think you really appreciate just where you are and it's very easy to forget that you're at the south pole and there's you know, nothing around you for 500 miles um so i think it was just the experience of being there that's a very good answer i feel like it would just yeah the whole time you could just be like whoa like i'm at the south pole right now like yeah this is it's, a, it's a weird feeling 
Um, you mentioned the auroras, um, which some people here might know them as the northern lights, because especially in northern Canada, you can see the northern lights quite often. Some people might not have known that there are South Pole auroras, right? Do you call them the yeah, southern so, lights? Yeah, so you have the aurora borealis in the north um, and the aurora australis in the south. So it's the southern lights. Um, and it's actually to the it's kind of a ring. It forms the, the way you see them most strongly. It's kind of a ring on like over both poles. So there's a, this, the pole is not actually the best place to see them. You want to be a little bit um, further north or south. But still, it's yeah, it, it's almost every night you can see these displays. Wow. That actually kind of leads into one more question from our audience, which is, have you seen Antarctic moon halos? I don't know what those are. Yeah. So un unfortunately, no, I can tell you what a halo is. So um, it, basically you have um, like the sun on the moon and in Antarctica, there's lots of ice in the air. So there's always ice crystals floating around. And if the conditions are kind of just right, I think the it has to do with the elevation of the how high the object is in the sky. So how, how high the moon is, how high the sun is. Um, you can get these kind of effects where the light bends and refracts through the ice crystals and you get this kind of ring or halo around around the sun or the moon. Um, and I've seen it for the sun and it's very cool because you have, there are lots of kind of features in this halo. So it's not just a ring around the sun. There's kind of these, like a, people might have seen sun dogs. If you've heard of a sun dog, these kind of like two lobes either side of the sun that get lit up sometimes if the conditions are just right. Um, and you can get the same for the moon, but we never saw it, unfortunately. Um, but that's, the sun, yes. That's still cool though. The sun one would still be equally cool, I think. Yeah, I mean, you can see it elsewhere on Earth as well. It's just um, more difficult to get the conditions right. Whereas if it's always sunny and it's always icy, it's <laughs> it happens more often. That makes sense. I have um, one more question for you, which is, do you have any advice for someone who might be interested in either becoming a physicist or becoming someone who gets to work in these kinds of really cool out there places? Yeah, I think I'll go for the second question first. Um, and that is to say that if you're interested in working in Antarctica, just look at the jobs that apply because it's not just physicists. Um, in fact, only I think a quarter of the station staff are scientists. So we have a, you know, there are a lot of people who kind of keep the station running who are um, who are not scientists. So even if you feel like, oh, I'm not a, um, a neutrino physicist, you could still, maybe you want to be there as a cook or <laughs> all kinds of different things. So there are, yeah, basically all the skills are welcome <laughs> in Antarctica. But the main thing is just apply, I think, if you're interested in in going. Um, look, you know, jobs open probably around now, actually, for, for upcoming seasons. And yeah, just hope for the best, really. Is that how you got the job? Did you just Google Antarctica jobs? I guess you were through Ice Cube and you were a physicist. Yeah, so, so I, I had a slightly different route because, um, because I was working for the US Antarctic Programme. Um, and I'm not a US citizen. The only jobs that I'm eligible for are science-based jobs because they are, we go through universities. So I work for um, University of Wisconsin-Madison. Whereas if you're a US citizen, there's a lot more jobs you could do. Um, and so, yeah, so in my case, um, I guess I, I knew people who were involved in, um, in different experiments. Um, so I have a friend who's actually going down this year for the, the South Pole Telescope, which is another uh, instrument down there. Um, and I have friends doing neutrino physics in other areas. And yeah, I was talking to them and thought this sounds like a fun thing to try and apply for. And I applied and got the job and that's kind of it. 
but you hear very different stories some people would say like i applied like 10 times and didn't get a job other people say yeah, i saw an ad in the newspaper and and here i am so it's it's very variable and it's there's a lot of luck involved so if you uh, that's another thing if you don't get in um often like all, all these positions have what we call primary and alternate positions so there will be people who are the primaries and they will like they're the people who the job is offered to and they will nominally go to antarctica but we always have backups because things happen people decide they don't want to do it um people might have medical issues that means they can't go um so it's, it's really not uncommon for the kind of main people to not make it and they call people on a wait list so definitely don't be disheartened if you are you know if for example you apply and they say well you're a backup because reasonable chance you still go that's still really cool i do wonder about like the chefs that end up going like how do you end up being a chef <laughs> and being like are there jobs in antarctica i guess maybe you yeah do. um i mean i know our, our kind of head chef i mean he went to culinary school and was i think by all accounts a normal chef and at some point got working in antarctic bases so he's um he's actually now at palmer which is another u.s station so he's done he's worked in all three of the u.s uh places it's a yeah it's i think it's a slightly different way of cooking you have to kind of be very creative to to make the most of the ingredients that we have and you know making things tasty um and also because you're so high up that things like water doesn't boil at a, a, you know 100 or 212 fahrenheit so making things like pasta is quite difficult <laughs> yeah, oh, if you ever yeah. tried to boil water on a mountain it doesn't boil as hot as it does at sea level so anything that requires like a lot of boiling to soften is just difficult that's interesting because it just doesn't get hot enough to actually cook it but you can't get it past that because it just boils yeah. away unless you use a pressure cooker mm. or something but yeah mm, that makes sense cool. well that's all the questions that i have for you today josh thank you so so much for joining me yeah pleasure and as always, a big, big thank you to everybody listening. Do you have a question that you'd like answered by an expert? Send us an email or a voice recording at whatdoscientistsdo at superstaff.ca. For more science fun, you can also follow us on social media at scientistsdopod on Twitter and Instagram. Thank you so much for listening, and I'll see you next episode. Bye for now! This podcast was made by Supernova at Dalhousie University, a network member of Actua. For more information on our summer camps, workshops, and more, check out supernova.dal.ca.